Welcome, everybody, to episode six of the Adrenaline Podcast. My name is John Paul, and I'm going to be sharing some thoughts with you today, as well as a really fun interview I did with Dylan Sheridan, the head coach at Cleveland State University. Uh, we actually did the interview about a month ago, Then um, I got tied up taking all kinds of vacations in late August and early September, and here I am catching up and getting this interview out, and I'm glad I am because there's a lot of really good stuff on it that, uh, that I think you're going to enjoy. So what's happened since we recorded in August? I think the biggest news in the lacrosse world were the NCAA rule changes uh, that took effect, most notably the adoption of the shot clock and then ultimately the, the tweaking of that rule uh, to the consistent 80-second count on possession. Um, I'm not going to get into a lot of speculation here on what the shot clock is going to mean for the game uh, and how it's going to be, um, how tactics are going to change, how recruiting is going to change. I think a lot of that still has to play out. I don't think it's going to be consistent team to team. Um, and I think there are a lot of people doing a lot of that out there trying to speculate now about how this is going to change things or not change things. For me, as a proponent of the shot clock, and I, I am – Count me in the camp that's really glad that this rule was passed. Uh, and also, as an aside, I'm also fired up that the dive is back in whatever form it's going to be. Um, and, and both of them for the same reason. I, I'm all about growing the game of lacrosse. You know, in the whole scheme of things, we're still a tiny niche sport. And it's, it's a great sport. It's the best sport in the world. And, and I want to see it grow. I want to see more people drawn to it. I want to see more fans drawn to it. I want to see more people playing the sport. Uh, and to me, rules like these are about drawing more people to our game and, and keeping them. When a new fan turns on the television and catches lacrosse for the first time, I want the rules, I want them to be able to relate to the rules. I want uh, them to be able to understand it fairly quickly. They don't have to know all the nuances, but they should be able, there shouldn't be a rule that, uh, that they're completely confused about. It, it should be fairly intuitive. And to me, the shot clock is, is one of those. Rather than having officials raising their arms up based on their subjective measure of when a team is slowing things down or not, uh, which would be something that a new fan is never going to understand, uh, a shot clock everybody gets. And, um, and is just another... Uh, it's one less hurdle for a new fan to get over as they're trying to understand and appreciate the game. And, and that's what these rule changes are about to me. The dive is the same thing. When you look at highlights of lacrosse uh, and, and in any sport, really, how many of those highlights are dives, diving catches and diving saves and diving shots? Those are highlights. And you know, our sport can use those highlights. And, uh, and I don't think we should be cutting them out of the game uh, unless there is a really, really serious safety issue. And in this case, uh, I never saw the evidence that there was. I've been around the game for a long, long time. And, um, and in, in my direct experience, never saw a serious injury result from, uh, from a dive shot. 
and certainly saw many, many exciting plays happen because of it. So happy to see that's back. Happy to see the shot clock instituted. Uh, I think better late than never in this case. Congratulations to the committee on getting that done. Um, and I think in, from my perspective, these rules are going to help the game draw new fans, draw new players, uh, and and just be more easily understandable to people that are getting their first exposure to such a great sport. Uh, what else is going on? Well, it's September. It's mid-September as I'm recording this. And September 1 has come and gone in the recruiting world. September 1 is a big date, especially under the new rules that are uh, about a year old now because the class of 2020 is now having their first official contact since the new rules went in place with coaches. And there was a lot of speculation out there, especially about this class, because there are quite a few kids committed early, you know, as freshmen and sophomores in high school uh, who were waiting for 2020, uh, for September 1 of 2018 to come when they're going to be juniors in high school. Um, so they made their commitment. They're talking to the coaches. They're talking to them on the phone. They're doing unofficial visits. And suddenly that's cut off. And they can't talk to them in any way again until September 1 for some kids uh, a year and a half between contacts. So a lot of people were thinking this was going to be the Wild West uh, and kind of this crazy flurry of commitments and decommitments and and, uh, and visits and, and all this stuff that was going to go on the moment September 1 hit. And what really happened was a whole lot of nothing. Uh, and the sense I'm getting from the college coaches that I'm talking to is that everybody's treating this whole rule change, uh, regardless of you know, how this is affecting this particular class, as an opportunity to slow down and bring some sanity into the process and, you know, really take time to figure out uh, as best as possible who the right fits are and um, where the right fits are for the right kids and, um, and, and really make this a process again, rather than a mad rush, which is really when I left division one coaching was really what it was. Uh, so Glad to see that it's turned out that way. Glad to see that everybody seems to still be slowing down and, and just breathing into this and, and allowing the process to, to take its course. And I think ultimately this is going to end up being good for uh, coaches, college across prog programs, and most importantly, the athletes who um, are going to end up in more often than they were before in the right fits for them. And, uh, and that's really what this is all about. So. Um, so those are the two major things that have happened since I've last been in front of the mic, um, the rule changes and, and September 1 coming and going. We're in the midst of football season now, lacrosse terms. Uh, everybody is, has fall ball going or, or is about to and, uh, and is into their, many of the Division One programs are into their 20-hour weeks. And so, you know, everybody's into the fall grind right now. And, and I can tell you as a 20-year as a college coach, this is the time that's so exciting. Uh, as you, you know, you're, you're by the end of the season, you're kind of ready for a break. Everybody's ready for a break from each other. You get through the summer and by the end of the summer, you're chomping at the bit to get going again. And, uh, and it's such an exciting time to get the team back on the field at that first team meeting to get out there in that first practice. And, um, and fall goes pretty quickly. You don't have a lot of weeks of 20 hour weeks. It might just be 
four or five weeks, maybe six weeks of it, it, it goes fast. So everybody's looking to, to maximize that time right now, but it also doesn't last long enough that it becomes much of a grind. It's just uh, falls a really fun time. Um, so envious of all those guys that are in the midst of it right now, especially the athletes who, you know, are, are, are back at it. And, uh, and everybody is in the same spot right now. Everybody has a ton of excitement and potential for what this year could be. Um, I'm going to be back in a minute with Dylan Sheridan and, uh, and sharing the conversation that we had a few weeks ago. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Hope you'll stick around and we'll talk to you in a few talk minutes. You in a few minutes. And we are back, Adrenaline Podcast number six. Got a pretty special guest today, Dylan Sheridan, the head coach at Cleveland State University. Dylan, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm, uh, as always, excited to talk with you. And um, you know, every time I get the chance, I always pick something up and learn something. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity. Well, we're here to learn from you today. Uh, and, you know, that's going to be my role here is to is – to, get as much out of you as we can today. And, and I'm excited for that as well. And, you know, before we start, I want to talk a little bit about your path, but, um, you know, going back to uh, when we first met many years ago, uh, when you were just coming off being a college lacrosse player at Claremont in California, and we were over in Japan playing in the Asia Pacific games, you were on that USA West squad that we coached and dominated the Asia Pacific games that was when we first met yeah yeah it was uh it was an awesome experience for me one obviously the cultural piece and and getting to go to Asia for the first time but I think two I was just hungry and just very excited about the opportunity to be coached by professional coaches and surrounded by really high level teammates I mean there was guys on the team that played division one at a high level or captains of their programs and to be able to, to, to do that as an MCLA Division II guy, it was like, this is, this is the greatest thing going, you know? Right. And I still had one more year of college, actually, after that. So I was like, I can take what I learned from these coaches. And at the time, I was the coach at Claremont, so I could take it back and we could run that stuff. So um, guys like yourself, Jason Lamb and Mike Allen, uh, it was just such a privilege, and I just really enjoyed it. And, yep. and then you, with the Japanese experience already, having been at Michigan working with the Japanese – you were like the, the perfect liaison for us to, to learn and like in, in, ingratiate ourselves there. So it was, it was a pretty cool experience. That was a really neat experience. Kenny Brochart was on that staff too. And a funny note about Kenny, Kenny hates rice. He doesn't eat any rice. And we were, we were three weeks in Osaka, Japan. <laughs> Kenny, so. Kenny spent a lot of time at McDonald's that trip. Uh, he, <laughs> yeah. Avid McDonald's frequenter. <laughs> but Mike Allen is a vegetarian. So between the two of them, you know, they get meals and Mike would give Kenny all his meat. Kenny would give Mike all his vegetables and rice. So they would, they, they ended up being a really good team. Somehow we set up that staff perfectly to coexist. That's, that's um, funny. It's, it's awesome too, because a lot of the relationships that started on that team are, are still like extremely strong today. I, you know, I still talk to Jason and Mike and I see yeah. Kenny obviously at the events and uh, it's just been pretty cool that that has carried on and, speaks to the kind of fraternity of the lacrosse world. Tell you something else about that team that, that stands out to me too is 
Um, you know, you're right. The team had, it had a lot of really good club players on it. It had some really, really good division one lacrosse players on it. Um, but p- perhaps the best player on that team was Billy Bingy who played division two lacrosse. Uh, and then for, for well, actually was going to play division two lacrosse and then played club lacrosse at Oakland university. Uh, he was lights out. And, he and was he lights out, for, wasn't he? Works for warrior now. So I still see him too. Yeah. Yeah. Still, he's it's a, a warrior one. doing his thing, but you know, just a, I thought a great indicator of, you know, the fact that you can be a great lacrosse player at any level, right? And, and Billy, you know, stood out on that team that was loaded with talent uh, and, um, and at the international level. If you remember all the Japanese fans at the final at that stadium, we were out like, Billy Bingy, Billy Bingy. And, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a great indicator that you don't have to be a Division One lacrosse player to be the best lacrosse player out there. You can, you can be a great lacrosse player at any level. Yeah, and I think that you know. Uh, that said, I think that Division One coaches since those days have really taken a, a, a much deeper dive into recruiting the non-traditional areas. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the guys that were on the Santa Barbaras and the and the different teams that were dominant at, during that day and age, all those kids are going to Division One and to other NCAA levels as well. So it's it's been a big change in the last ten years. I think you're right. Um... So you're back home in Cleveland. You grew up outside of Cleveland. You went to Western Reserve Academy. Um, it's got to feel special to come back home with the, with the coaching path you've had and the college path you've had to be able to come back home and do this in your home in the land. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's honestly sometimes it's, it's too good to be true. Um, you know, I picked up a stick for the first time as a freshman boarding student at Reserve, right? I'd never seen lacrosse before. And to be able to bring Division One lacrosse and the Dukes and the and the Penn States and the Michigans of the world to, to Cleveland and, and show kids just like me the game at the highest level, it's like, what an honor. And, and I feel a, a big responsibility as well. And and so that's why we're working so hard to, to put a great product on the field and, and in the community here. But um, it's amazing. And then for my wife to be doing the same thing at Kent State now, it's like, you know, no matter where we're going to go, we're going to be involved with cross, but now we get to do it in a place that I feel like is a uh, accepting of us fertile for lacrosse growth, but B it's close to my heart, you know? So I'm very thankful for these opportunities. No doubt. A uh, couple quick Cleveland questions before we go on. Does uh, this may be a sore spot, but does, the, does LeBron win a championship with the Lakers? I don't, I mean, I can't see anybody winning a championship until Golden State somehow uh, I agree completely. You know, starts to go downhill. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think Tristan hit Draymond hard enough for that to really <laughs> impact at this point. Yeah, I agree. And uh, are you a hard knocks fan? I I, uh, I watched it this uh, last night. Yeah, I watched it a day too. late because there was so much buzz and chatter around here that I was like, I got to watch it. So uh, I watched it and I'm like immediately like, where do I get a Jarvis Landry jersey? Right? <laughs> but one, he seems like an awesome dude. The little speech he gave in the film room was great. Yeah. Where he's yeah. Like, and, and he's the highest paid guy in the room, you know. But how, how important it is for your best players to lead. And, you know, here's a guy who is brand new on the team, hasn't even been there a week yet. And he's stepping up in a team meeting and saying, I don't know what y'all did before, but it's ending right now. This is the way we're doing it. And, yeah. and pretty much calling guys out directly and saying – you know, we're going to do it this way. You're going to be yeah. calm. And, and he has the clout to do it, not only because he's signed the biggest contract, but he led the league in receptions last year. It's like, this is, it's like, I'm a dude, and, and we're going to all get to this level. And that's, I mean, ultimately, as a coach, 
right? And you know this, like if a player can get up there and say that and it doesn't save you from having to say those things, it has t- it carries 10 times more weight. And if it's your best player, it, it 100 times more weight. No doubt. Right? Um, so out of Western Reserve Academy to Claremont McKenna College in California where you went to play football and, and played lacrosse as well while you're there, what, was it football that took you to Claremont McKenna? Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, going back to being at reserve, I originally um, had kind of committed to playing lacrosse at Navy. And my dad was a you know retired Navy guy, and that was like kind of big in the family. I wanted to go there my whole life. And then uh, he moved to California when I was a junior. And you know, on a whim, we went and checked out Claremont because the gal that he married, that's my stepmom, um, had some family go to Claremont. And once I saw it, I was, my whole life changed, right? Like, I want to go here. Football coach, you know, and I got in touch. He said, I absolutely want you on the team, start recruiting me. And um, and the rest is history. I ended up at Claremont. Um, played football, obviously loved that experience. Football is kind of the first love. Um, didn't have any intention to really ever pick up a stick again. And then these guys from the lacrosse team, you know, found out that I played and drew me out out of my dorm room and come play in the spring. And, and um, I, I credit the MCLA model for why I'm doing what I'm doing right now, because I got so much control and opportunity to contribute my ideas and, um, you know, uh, on the administrative side, you know, as opposed to as the player, um, that really kind of sparked the passion for coaching for me. Um, so really a unique experience. The other cool part about Claremont for me was that the football team was, uh, it was NCAA. So it was a couple of the five schools and our closest rival was a couple of the other of the five schools, but the lacrosse team was all five schools. It drew from all five. And so it allowed me to, uh, develop and build relationships, um, with, with people at other, at other colleges that I otherwise wouldn't have, um, and made the whole experience that much, that much richer. How was it, you know, obviously the, the club, the club lacrosse experience at, at Claremont um, was at that time not quite as evolved and developed as it is at some other club programs, but it's still pretty tough playing two sports. I mean, you're playing, you're playing football in the fall. I'm assuming you had spring football workouts and stuff you had to be doing in the spring. How were you able to balance that? I was really lucky that I had some, uh, some football coaches that support what I was trying to do and, and they saw value in lacrosse and um, the head coach that was there actually was Canadian. Uh, and, and he, he kind of got lacrosse and got that it's a great crossover sport. And so he didn't have any issues with me playing. And when I drug a couple other guys from the receiving <laughs> core, the defensive back core over to lacrosse, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't bark at me. So, um, he was a real supportive guy and I appreciated that. And, um, you know, it, it definitely wasn't a developed club by any means. And I think the, the greatest pride that I have is that the club is still going uh, until this year recently coach Pete Ginniger just retired yeah. coach that I helped bring in was still coaching the team and um, you know they were still having some some success so it, it, it lasted longer than just the the four years that, that you know my friends and I were there yeah that's, and that's you, you know you're gonna have a very similar legacy at Cleveland State and I think that says says a lot about, you know, your, your, both your opportunity and, and your ability to take advantage of those, those opportunities to leave lasting legacies in the sport, um, which maybe you don't intend to do as you're doing it. You know, you're just trying to do your job day by day. But, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, that's what you're doing when you're building something new. 
you're leaving something for someone else when you're, when you're gone, that wasn't there before. It wasn't the way it was before. And, and that's a special opportunity to be able to do that. Um, after, so when you, when you were there, I mean, you went for football, it's kind of a bonus. You got to play lacrosse. What did you think you were going to do with your life when you first went to Claremont before, before lacrosse really was an option? Uh, I still wanted to do military, basically. I, I, not necessarily military in, this, in the, the, the form of the branches that we're all used to, but, you know, the ones with three letters, that's what I was kind of interested in. Yeah. So that was kind of my thought process is that I was going to find a way to, to, to make a difference in the world doing that stuff. And then, um, you know, slowly but surely I started, you know, to work towards, all right, how can I find a job that's going to give me the time and financial flexibility to coach? Cause I love this. And then after that, it was, well, why even find a job that does that when I can just go coach as my job? And, and it was a, a weird kind of transition from one thing to the next, but, um, it led me to the coaching profession as a career and uh, certainly had some, some humble beginnings there the first couple of years, but learned a lot. And, and I still, again, go back to the, the opportunity to be in that kind of administrative role at Claremont and, and credit a lot of, uh, you know, why I do this to that experience. So first stop was, was Pfeiffer, right? That's that right. We, yeah. That we were first. And, and then uh, with coach Haas at Lebanon Valley, for a year before you made the, the jump to division one, what did you learn from those first couple jobs that, uh, you know, in that transition time between club and, and division one? Yeah. I mean, so much. I think the X's and O's thing was a complete indoctrination. Like I, I as a player, you, you know, you have some success on the field, you score some goals and you feel like you kind of get lacrosse and then you switch off and you're not playing anymore. And you're like, Holy crap, there's a, so much more of this game that I don't even understand and I need to learn. Um, so that was probably piece number one, you know, being young, I still related to the guys on the team really well. And I felt like that was something that came naturally to me, um, building those relationships. Um, but really just my understanding of the game and the aspects that I really had no involvement in when I was playing, I had to learn a lot of that. Um, being at Pfeiffer, I really had to learn kind of how, how much goes into uh, a division two or any collegiate lacrosse program, you know, at, at that place at the time I was mowing the, mowing the field. I was lining the field. I was yeah. doing the strength and conditioning. I was running those workouts. I mean, it was all, you know, on us. Um, and, and then moving over to Lebanon Valley, it was okay. Well, I get to work with a guy who has absolutely has a formula for how to do this. Right. He's been at WAC, won a national championship. He's been the head coach at Hopkins in Carolina. And now we're starting up a program at this little obscure Division Three that's got a wonderful reputation. We just have to build it. And he kind of got it. Right. So I got to literally study his kind of blueprint and not knowing that I'd ever go to a startup, but learn a lot from that. And that first year was pretty tough because we barely had guys with any lacrosse experience at all, but I was able to recruit that first class and I never coached them, but they kind of came in the next year and, and, and graduated and had a, a really, really solid four years. And I owe a lot to coach Oz. And, and even at that place, right. I was, I was an evening nighttime security guard. And during the day I was the, uh, I was the equipment manager for all the sports at the university. So I'm washing their clothes and hanging them in their lockers. And, no and I got to coach lacrosse for two hours a day. You know, that was my deal. Um, so I learned a lot from those two experiences and, um, then to get the opportunity at Denver was like, I hit the, I got, I won the lottery. Yeah. 
I think, you know, so many of us in sports in general, not just in lacrosse, have kind of those humble beginnings. It's one of those professions that you have to, you have to work your way up in to, to get to where you ultimately want to be. And, and, you know, like you, my wife and I have washed a lot of uniforms <laughs> in our own washing machine back in the day. So, you know, you, 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 you start in one place and, uh, and maybe you have a vision, maybe you don't. You're just so happy to be able to do what you're doing. And you're focused on doing the best job you can day by day. And, and, uh, and hopefully some of those opportunities present themselves as they go along and they have for you. And, you know, that next stop was a pretty big opportunity landing at Denver not long after coach T took over there and, and getting there right, you know, as that program was really hitting its stride. What was, what were those four years like? I mean, it was just to say it was incredible. is probably a, an under representation of what it was like for me. I mean, to be able to work with the staff and players of that, you know, uh, ilk was just out of control, right? Like the first year I was drinking, drinking from a fire hose. I, I didn't say a ton, you know, he had tasked me with learning the face-off stuff and running the box. And so I really, um, I tried my best to learn and own that. Um, and, and I was blessed with the kid in Chase Carrero that yeah. was dynamite. So it made, it made it somewhat easy, um, on, on that front, but, I got to learn how to coach offense from Matt Brown. I got to learn how to coach defense from Trevor and, and coach T and it's like, these guys are, 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 you know, once in a lifetime coaches and I'm sitting here um, getting to learn from those guys and watch them operate. So it was pretty, pretty special. Um, and, and it was not only are those guys amazing, but it was the timing of the whole thing um, to be a guy that played in California collegiately and then to be at Denver when they just kind of explode I took so much pride in being part of that, you know, the Western expansion. And um, I was so proud, even though I wasn't on the staff anymore, I was so proud and excited for them to win the national championship in 2015 and, and be that first team to, to do that West of the Mississippi. Um, just a really, really special opportunity and one I can never certainly pay back, but uh, I try to, you know, every day with what I'm doing here at CSU is, to try to kind of pay back those, those uh, opportunities I've been given. Uh, another big bonus of those four years, I'm assuming that you met your wife while you were yeah. out there. I'm doing the math. and No, yeah, actually we worked together. We met prior, so we worked together. She was the head women's coach at Lebanon Valley when I was oh, hosting. Yeah. Okay. And then even before we got to Lebanon Valley, we, we started dating out before then. So, um, yeah, the Denver thing I think was um, – uh, as much as it was a lacrosse opportunity and, and a chance for Coach T to bring somebody in that was hungry to get better, it was a way for him to keep me away from her for, uh, you know, an extended period of time. The guy gets a lot of credit for being pretty innovative and smart, but maybe not as much as he deserves. Yeah, no, he's uh, – I give him the most credit for being uh, flexible. You know, he's yeah. a flexible <laughs> guy. When you have that much success and you know what you're doing, it's like you don't necessarily need to listen to other people's ideas. and. Um, he he uh, he certainly does, and he's open-minded, which is pretty cool. Is that one of the is that one of the lessons you took from him? The, the I mean, here's a guy who's had unbelievable success, really unparalleled success, but he's still he's still learning. A hundred percent. I mean, constantly, like voraciously, like wants to figure it all out. And some of it is X's and O's, but I, I would say that that's a small percentage of where he diverts his attention or spends his energy. Um, and he's really a people guy and cultivates relationships but I think more than anything it's just 
there's no, he, he says it all the time, and he'd be the first one to say, there's no right way to do things. We do things our way, and we think it works, but our way is always evolving. And, um, you know, I, I definitely took that from him and, and, and just the way he transitioned from Princeton and the Princeton years to what they do at Denver now. It's just, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, and it's like you said, it's never been done before. It's pretty impressive to watch. So from Denver to Princeton for a year, why the move at the time? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask it. Um, I guess there's twofold, right? One, uh, my wife was really, really eager um, to, to go to Princeton. Um, she grew up there. She had a lot of, you know, just nostalgia about the area and the place. And um, from, from her end, I totally understood that. You know, I had made, made her go cross country to Colorado and there's not a lot of opportunity. At least there wasn't a, a boulder at the time. There wasn't a lot of collegiate opportunities for her. So if we went back to Princeton, then there's a million colleges she could coach at. Um, and I totally understood that. And, and two, from my part, is I, I felt probably stupidly that I could help Princeton get back, you know, to the level of play that they had, you know, previously been. And, um, uh, and I don't mean stupidly in that Princeton can't get there. I just, you know, probably thought too much of myself at the time. Um, but I also, like, how much could I do at Denver? You know, that was Coach T and Brownie's program, and, um, and I was grateful for my opportunities there and certainly loved the kids I got to coach, but that's, that's their thing. And I thought, you know, maybe if I move somewhere else and a place maybe that has had success and, and maybe fallen off a little bit, if I can help them get back, then I can leave a little bit of my own kind of uh, impression on the place. So we moved out to Princeton. <clears throat> what a place. I mean – just incredible and everything I thought I knew about it I I didn't even know the the half of it I mean the alumni network uh the support from the school the academic kind of profile it it just blew my mind and I I went to a a great little college but nothing like Princeton um and and just to be able to say that I worked there for a year now people think I'm smarter which is uh which is kind of a fringe benefit absolutely that Princeton's always going to be on your resume somehow now. Yeah, yeah, and the kids there, you know, they the kids there were so much different than I expected. They they were lacrosse guys, you know, they were really smart, but they were lacrosse guys, and they were hungry to learn lacrosse and get better and, and succeed. And the same way that my Cleveland State guys, and the same way the Pfeiffer and Lebanon Valley, they just want to win. And uh, I give the Princeton guys a ton of credit because they, you know, they didn't bat an eye when I was like, all right, well, we got to go to work then, and 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 that's what we did, and we had a pretty good year. Um, and I really had no intention to leave Princeton until obviously, you know, Cleveland state uh, announced that they were going to move to division one. And at that point, you know, once that even rumor slipped, I was like, okay, uh, I got to try to find a way to get that job. So in ultimately you got it uh, and, and landed there uh, three years ago, right? Th- this will be actually the start of my fourth year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, We've been competing. We finished our second season last spring, but we had a year where we were here just kind of recruiting and getting right. the, our feet on, on, on the ground. Right. What did you, what did you think your challenges were going to be building the program at Cleveland State, and, and how on the mark were you? Um, that's a great question. You know, the, the lacrosse side of things is different than maybe like the – the on the field lacrosse side than maybe the off the field, right? The on the field, it was a much different time from a recruiting standpoint. Things were very, very accelerated. Um, 
even just four years ago, right? I mean, it just was. And I took the job in late July. Um, so there weren't many rising seniors in late July that had the ability to make an impact at this level that were just hanging around. Um, but fortunately for me, again, all this stuff comes back to me just being in the right spot at the right time. I had developed this network in non-traditional areas because I worked at Denver that there were all these kids that I think maybe were under-recruited or just played two, three sports and didn't really do the lacrosse thing that I got to recruit to play division one that maybe uh, have the ability, but didn't necessarily get the looks that, that they maybe should have. Um, so that was pretty cool. I thought that was, that was kind of like, that's every kid from Ohio lacrosse's story when you're in high school. Right. And now it's, you know, the Cleveland state story. Um, so we got to do that piece of it. And then obviously, you know, we're going to play every big name team that we can get on the schedule. Well, that's going to be tough. Like those are going to be challenges and we're going to take our lumps, but I think it's going to make us better. Um, the off the field stuff, you can't begin to prepare for all the things that, that you don't even plan on that are going to be speed bumps along the way. But, um, that was probably to me, the most attractive piece of taking this position was pushing, pushing myself and my staff and, and challenging myself to expand in areas I'm not comfortable. I hadn't had any responsibility having to fundraise, I didn't have to interface with parents as an assistant coach. There's a million things as an assistant that I just, I wasn't forced to do. And uh, being the head coach, especially at a startup, uh, pushed me to have to, to learn and develop those skills. And um, that was really attractive to me. Yeah. It's, I, I've said this story and actually in the last recording I just did. And, uh, and when you're an assistant coach or when, when, in my case, I was a club coach for 14 years, but when you're assistant coach, your only boss is the head coach. You're buffered from everything else, right? There's all that other stuff. It's, it's going on out there, but the head coach is dealing with it. You don't have to deal with it. You're just coaching and doing whatever else he tells you to do. And, uh, and then once you're the head coach, it's like, bam, you know, all these different things are hitting you that you, that you have to be concerned about. You're running a program and, and you're now the conduit for everybody in the university and the community in and out of that program. And that's when, when I was hired to be the division one coach here, Dave Brandon asked me what the hardest thing was going to be for me in the job. And I said, the hardest thing is going to be having a boss because I haven't had one you know, in, mm -hmm. in 14 years. It's going to be the hardest thing for you too. So we're going to get used to it together. But that was, uh, it is, it's a different world and there's a big learning curve, but you're three seasons in now, you're two seasons in third season about to start. So what do you think, how do you think you've grown as a coach the most in those last two, three years? Yeah, I mean, I still struggle with a lot of the same things, and, I, and I'm still a work in progress in certain areas, especially, uh, you know, just uh, emotional control and all that stuff that um, I think all of us as coaches deal with, you know. Um, but I think where I've grown is just, um, you know, my ability to kind of juggle it all. You know, I, I've never been a multitasker. I've been a guy that, like, gets laser-focused on one thing, and knocks that one thing out of the park, but probably at the detriment of all the other things going on in my life. Um, so I've become a much better multitasker. And, um, you know, now that I'm a dad, I'm, I'm glad that that's the case because I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully a better dad as a result. Which, you know, as a coach and a father, how do you, how do you manage that? Division one coaching is incredibly time consuming. You're away a lot, especially when you're, coaching in a non-traditional area and you have to recruit out of your area, you know, more than a lot of the East coast coaches have to do. 
how do you find that balance? And, and you have a wife who's a coach as well. How do you how do you guys find that balance to get some time together as a family? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not easy, honestly, especially with her. You know, trying to get her startup program off the ground, which is by by necessity very labor intensive. Um, it's tough. It's tough, and and um, you know we don't want our little guy to feel like uh, you know we aren't around. So we're just we're trying to tag team and do the best that we can, and obviously learn on the fly as first time parents. But um, it's not easy, and um, the the great part is that you know, we have these unbelievable uh, young people to, to mentor and role model, you know, behavior for our, our guy, our little guy, when he gets old enough to kind of understand it all. And, 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 and my wife will have some amazing young ladies on her team. So that's really what we're looking forward to is just that our son will get to grow up around both these teams and just um, kind of get the upbringing that she experienced when she was a, a kid in Princeton. And uh, I can't wait. I can't wait for those days. I saw a little nugget um, the other day on social media, probably about how Dabo Sweeney at, Cle at uh, Clemson runs his staff. And, and I admire a lot of things about how he coaches, but, but one of the things that this was a, a guy who coached on his staff and doesn't anymore. And he said, one of the things that stood out about him was how focused he was on making sure that all of his staff got to spend time with their families, how he would kick guys out of the office in the middle of the day, even on like Florida state week on a Wednesday to go to their daughter's dance recital. Like, you know, get out, go do it. You can come back and do that work later. And, uh, and that's, you, you have to force it sometimes in this. You profession. do. You do. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I've always said this and coach T's always said this to me. It's like, um, we overcoach the guys I mean, we practice too much and we we get too complicated and, and, and I'm now starting to learn and believe that we, we can simplify and, and be more efficient and, and, and our guys don't suffer for it. It's not a pun. It's not, something that's negative to our program. Our program's not suffering as a result. It's just, uh, it's a fine line. And it's, it's one I think we all struggle to walk, but um, I'm learning it and I'm, I'm hopefully uh, gonna continue to improve at it. So what does that look like when you're, when you're preparing your guys, right? And, and there's, I think there's two kinds of preparation here. There's a preparation you're doing off season to, to make them into a team and to make them better individual lacrosse players. And then there's obviously game preparation where you're getting ready to play somebody. What does that look like to be prepared the right amount to play, you know, versus over-prepared or under-prepared? Yeah, it's tough. You know, it's, it's this inexact science um, when you're dealing with all these different brains and, and you don't know what's going on in their lives. You know, is it girlfriends? Is it finals? Is it, is it Fortnite? You know? Um, yes. It's tough because there's some games where you come out and you're super confident and your guys lay an egg. And then there's some games you come out and you're like, I don't even know if we did enough this week. And then they, they kill it. And so I'm still, you know, new enough to this as a head coach where I don't have it pegged. You know, I, I just don't. But um, I think what I have done and will continue to do is, yeah, I'm focused on the on the field preparation and the game preparation. But my focus really is on the, the life preparation. And I spend probably more of my time on, on the off the field stuff to make these guys prepared to be successful after lacrosse is over than I do anything on the field. And I feel a huge responsibility and I'm sure every coach at the collegiate level does, but here even more so because we have no alumni, we have nobody else. So I've got to do everything in my power to make sure that these guys walk out this door and through the next door and succeed. 
and uh, I can use lacrosse as that mechanism, and I try to, and I'm very disciplined, and our guys are very disciplined, but I spend a ton of time on the other stuff. And, and uh, I'm seeing the fruits of that labor now, and I think the next two years we're going to see it, and it's going to manifest itself in, in actual performance on the field. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely with you, and it's also going to bring you so much satisfaction later in life when you know those guys are 5, 10, 15 years down the road and they're living their lives, and, and all of the things that you're working on now have become part of their lives, and they're now passing that on to whoever they're raising or coaching or teaching or, or, uh, or managing in their careers. You know, that's, to me, that's where the satisfaction of coaching comes in is winning is great, but it's, it's that stuff. It's, it's, it's what you guys turn into 10, 15 years ago and whatever small influence you had on that. That's a hundred percent where I'm at with it. I mean, I didn't come here with the expectation that we we're going to fire up a national championship in the first few years. Right. So my focus has been on, on cultivating these guys. And, you know, uh, I, I felt like the devastation of going to final fours and losing. It's like, you can't focus on that. And, and be fulfilled you you got to spend your energy and time elsewhere and and this 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 opportunity with a startup has provided that for me what are the on the field at a program like cleveland state your startup program you know you your first year especially you, you don't have top level division one talent on the team yet um what kind of goals are you putting in front of the guys that are going to fire them up to get out there day to day you know, especially once that first season starts and even through the second season when they're, you know, they're not seeing success on the scoreboard game in, game out. What, what kind of goals are you putting in front of them that are getting them motivated? Yeah, I think in year one, really the mantra for us was just compete, like compete in everything that you do. Um, if you do that and you push yourself, uh, you're going to be better for it in year two, year three, and year four. And I had to get these guys to think, you know, bigger than just year one, you know, and, 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 Fortunately for me, I have a pretty mature group of young guys that, that, that are looking to the future but willing to do the work today to get there. Uh, but compete in everything, academically, uh, community service. And this is all stuff, by the way, that I might have stolen from, from you. Uh, I remember having these discussions. Absolutely. So we, yeah. we tried to win all those little battles. And, um, you know, I, I was very lucky that I got to, to kind of mix my schedule up a little bit in the first year so that our guys could taste success a little bit um, and see that, you know, it might not work against Denver, but it's going to work against other teams. We just got to keep at it. Um, and that, that fueled their fire to the next one and the next one. And, um, and we had some stretches in games where we, we played very well against some of the best teams. We played two number one teams in the country in our first year. Um, and, and so that was enough, I think, for them to continue to stay motivated. And they just wanted to compete. And they kind of bought bought into what we were doing. And, and last year, um, it, it was totally different, right? It's, okay, well, now we're not the first ones doing it. We've been through this. And there was an element of complacency that maybe took, took hold on some of our older guys and allowed some of these newer guys, the freshmen, to, to push past them a little bit. And at the end of the day, that's what college athletics is about. It's, it's about that internal competition. So as much as that pained me to see it, that's it. They needed to experience that, a sophomore slump for, for some kids. Um, and now in year three, I'm just like super fired up because the culture is, is firmly established. We've got guys that are upperclassmen that take an immense amount of pride in this thing uh, physically. 
they're developed way more than they were when we got them two years ago. Um, and, and we're just smarter about how we're doing everything because we've kind of learned through our mistakes. So, um, I'm really excited about, about this season coming up. Who do you open with this year? The Buckeyes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the in-state rival and your uh, place or their place. They've never lost down in Woody Hayes. That's right. And, uh, I'm looking forward to handing them the first one. Good. Good for you. We, uh, I was incredibly privileged to coach the Michigan team in your first game ever at Cleveland state in the, under the, in the bubble and was, um, it was such a cool experience for us, not only as a, you know, as a, as still a relatively new team ourselves, but it had gone through the whole startup process to be able to be part of that and was really taken with, um, one, how hard your guys played, uh, but two, the whole atmosphere and attitude around it was, was just special. There was so much excitement around that, that first game. It was, it was incredible. And I had to literally take a deep breath because we were competitive for stretches in that game. No question you were. You kind of get lost in that. You want to obviously find a way to win, but ultimately, you know, you guys got away from us and as, as you should have, but I had to remind myself, like, stop worrying about the score right now. That's not what it's about. You know, these guys, these kids just played against, you know, a phenomenal team in Cleveland in the first game ever at the division one level, like, and just soak that moment in. And, uh, it's surreal. It's surreal. I, uh, actually somebody gave me a poster today of a picture of the first goal in Cleveland state's history. And I gotta get it. I gotta get it framed because it's amazing. But, um, yeah, what an unbelievable opportunity. It was also the first goal of the game. You guys are up one, nothing. And, and yeah, I wanted you know, to blow the whistle and call it. Our sideline, we're going, we got to stop this run right now. <laughs> <laughs> I did. So I coached the Thai national team and we played good Canadians in 2014 yeah. in a scrimmage, just like a friendly. And we scored the first goal and immediately I, it was a scrimmage. So I blew the whistle and brought our guys in. I was like, we're out. We're out. That's yeah. how I felt when we played you guys. I was like, this is it. <laughs> Where's where's the lightning? Let's exactly. <laughs> um, um, yeah, it was awesome, and I and I honestly I can't thank you enough for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know our relationship goes back, but you didn't have to do that, and it it uh it was it was bigger than just you and I. I mean, that was a big thing for for lacrosse in this area. And we felt that, and I wanted to make sure that my guys felt and appreciated that as well. And it was funny; I had to convince my administration they weren't as fired up about it. You know, us going down to Cleveland and and playing a new team. They're like, what could the possible win be for us out of this other than a win, you know, potentially, uh, you know, what if we lose this game? And, and, you know, I had to, had to convince them that it wasn't about that. I mean, obviously we were going down to win a lacrosse game, but you know, we were about, we, we all talk about growing the game so much, right? What, what better way to launch things in the Midwest than to get a, a big 10 level school, whether it's Austin or Ohio state or whoever it is, playing in your first game at home. I mean, that's what I thought was special was to, to have the opportunity to bring that to Cleveland, which, uh, which I'm glad we did. It was uh, it was a really neat experience. Um, circling back a little bit, you played football and lacrosse in college and you, you obviously played them both in high school as well. Are you looking specifically for multi-sport athletes when you recruit now? How important is that to you? Uh, extremely uh, for, for a myriad of reasons. Um, Obviously, the athletic skill set, the crossover there, um, I, I think that uh, m- more mental than physical. 
However, I, I think that there are obvious benefits from the physical side and that, you know, uh, a football team in high school is going to be further along in terms of their weight training program than, than most lacrosse programs are in high school. And that certainly helps the kid transition to the next level. But um, for me, it's the mental side of things. Um, the lacrosse only guys, um, A, it's obvious that they have a higher burnout rate. Um, but B, I just don't think um, – they develop the coping me mechanisms uh, of being a role player on another sport or having a different kind of role. Um, there are so many different roles on a football team, right? And you might only play one way. You might be a lineman. You might never score a touchdown, you, you know, but you're integral to the team's success. You learn so much from that, um, that in a lacrosse only kid never gets that experience. And the same is true for a variety of other sports, but, um, I think that that's so valuable because I don't care who you are or how highly you're touted. When you get to the next level, you're going to get humbled. And and if you haven't developed those kind of coping mechanisms and understand how to be a role guy and be a team player, it's not about you. Um, you're going to struggle. And and I see those kids, the lacrosse guys, the lacrosse specific guys, I should say, struggle the most uh, when they get to the next level. And And so, I, I tend to lean more towards the multi-sport guys. I also think that there's a higher upside there. If we, we spend more time focusing on lacrosse, that, that kind of um, untapped potential um, can, can be, uh, you know, captured. I, I don't know. It's just, and maybe it's just a personality thing. I just gravitate to those guys more. We have more in common. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I agree with that part of it. And, and that's a, that's a really interesting perspective about the coping mechanism that you develop when, when you have to play different roles in different sports and, you're getting coached differently. And, and let's face it in, especially, I think it's starting to change in our sport, but you know, traditionally as, as lacrosse has grown, there haven't been a lot of professional coaches at the high school level, at the club level. Often the kids aren't held accountable to a very high standard. They're just showing up to play. Maybe they're practicing a couple times a summer. Uh, and it took some of those other sports, you know, a kid playing high school football to be coached hard a little bit, right? So that they're ready for some of that level of adversity that they maybe weren't getting from their high school lacrosse team because they're going to get coached hard when they get to college. That's, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think it makes so much sense. Um, and just receiving criticism in practice, you know, it's, it's six to one. If you're going by a Saturday afternoon game and you got five other practices and it's like, you're going to receive a lot more criticism than praise. And are you prepared for that? And you probably didn't get that if you just played lacrosse, you know? Um, so it, it's definitely interesting. Um, you know, and, and I don't know, you and I grew up probably similar in terms of Michigan high school across and Ohio high school across. I played it for two months. I played it, you know, the weather was good enough in what, April, uh, maybe late March, April and early May. Boom. And then you're on to the next thing, right? These guys that play constantly all year round, it's like they do look better in a tournament environment, but is that going to translate to college when you're practicing that much and, you're getting yelled at and coached hard, like you said. I, I don't know. We were talking a little bit before we, we started recording about analytics, and that would be an interesting analytics study in, in uh, high-level lacrosse, kind of the success versus burnout ratio and, and measuring success of, of kids that were multi-sport athletes versus those that weren't. It would be, it'd be an interesting study. Yeah, I mean, every is. year after the Super Bowl – you see that stat put out by somebody and how many players in the Super Bowl were multi-sport athletes. And it's like crazy. I mean, it's like out of 106, like, you know, 95 of them. Well, I, I, 
I've had those discussions with Michigan football coaches. I remember talking to sitting down and talking to coach Oak about this and, and, and coach Harbaugh as well. And those guys emphasized multi-sport athletes still do. And uh, one of the things Coach Hope emphasized was he wanted guys who just got a joy out of competing all the time, competing for real wins and losses, you know, and he didn't, he didn't care if they were on the, you know, the, the cross country team or the swim team or the golf team or the table tennis team. He didn't really care. He's wanted them to be doing stuff that they were going to win or lose a lot. And yeah. that's, that was important to him. Yeah. I think that's so meaningful. Uh, absolutely. And, and you can see those guys and how they translate when they get to college because it's like all the stuff that nobody wants to do, they're fired up to do. And if not fired up, they're at least going to get it done because they don't want to lose. That's yep. it. Yep. Um, that football experience, you know, having played varsity football in college and, and football through high school, I, I joke a lot and, and we've touched on a little bit that, I think a lot of Division One lacrosse coaches kind of think they're football coaches and try to coach our sport as if they're football coaches, but they, in many ways, couldn't be more different sports. What did you take from your football experience that, that you bring as a lacrosse coach now, and, and what did you have to leave behind? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the stuff that I, I took – uh, kind of got popularized when when like the Oregon football and the up-tempo stuff became, you know, really popular in collegiate football. But just the organization, you know, having the time right in front of you and having a very quick-paced practice and moving from one thing to the next. And um, uh, certainly the film aspect, I feel like, uh, you know, I probably place more emphasis on it, probably more for my own uh, you know, consumption than, than the players. Cause I do think there's a saturation point for them. Um, but really watching a lot of film and I really enjoy doing scouting reports. And again, probably sometimes to the detriment of what our players can actually absorb, but I just, I like it. It's what, the way I came up in sports. So um, that part of it's all stuff that I kind of took from football. I think the, the downside is a little bit of um, uh, there's a little rigidity there. In, in football, it's like the play has to be run this way. If this guy steps this way, this is exactly the way that, you know, this is it. And lacrosse, it's just not the case. You know, there's so much more flow to the game. Um, it's just less black and white. And I think that it, it's still taking me time to figure out how to process um, just how free it can be as opposed to the black and white rigid nature of football that I'm so accustomed to. It is a flow sport, and that goes back to the balance of feeling like you're fully prepared or not for something, or your guys are fully prepared or not to, to play a game and to compete, because ultimately, how much information can they process to make decisions where you know, their muscles have to fire very fast to execute those decisions? Uh, how much can they process as they're making these split-second decisions in a sport that doesn't stop, right? Mm -hmm. You don't reset every four seconds and, and do the next play it's, it's going. And, yeah. and the, and the other guy, you know, when you line up on the offensive line and, and you see the way the defensive lineman is lined up, there's only so many options for that guy from the spot he's in, right? He's going to do a, B or C from this spot. You're reacting to that, right? Or you're, or you're determining what he's going to do based on what you do in lacrosse. That's not often the case, right? Guy, guy could be doing anything in front of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where I think, uh, going back to my earlier point about Coach T being able to change and evolve, uh, I've struggled evolving from football to lacrosse in that uh, 
I had success in football because I could be that thinker. Um, not because I was athletic or big, because I'm neither one, um, but because I could think. And uh, I think lacrosse kind of limits your ability to do that kind of processing of information. You got to be more of a, a natural athlete. Obviously, the skill set of having the stick in your hands, but um, I'm still trying to figure that out as a coach. The uh, the great equalizer and one of the neat things about our sports. I mean, you talk about having to be an athlete, and obviously, being a great athlete is is so important. But one of the great things that's still true in lacrosse is anybody with a base level of athleticism can develop elite stick skills. If you put the time in, you can develop great stick skills. You get anybody, anybody with elite stick skills can be great at lacrosse. Yeah, right? you get so. immediate feedback, and that's the beauty of it, right? You in a wall, and you immediately get feedback because you start to throw it, and it goes high, well, you're going to adjust. It goes wide, you're going to adjust. And as a person that's athletic that has that kind of athletic intuition, you're going to pick it up pretty quickly. And then to take it to the next level, it's just commitment. Yep. Um, but kind of going off of that, what we were talking about before, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. So we're talking about being able to think ahead of the play and have that kind of ability to process and you have less time for that in lacrosse. Where do you net out with technology on the sideline for lacrosse? Because in my opinion, um, I don't think it should exist. I think that they should make a rule where you're not allowed to have that. Like the coaches have to go off of their gut and what they're seeing on the field as opposed to having, you know, four or five or six student managers with iPads in their hands kind of chopping it all up as it happens and giving them giving them exactly what they need to do, um, whether it's at a timeout or a quarter or halftime. Yeah, so I, I haven't, you know, when I left Michigan, we were a year away from all of that stuff being available to us, which it, it is now for that staff. And so I didn't get to use it uh, in game, but I had plans to. I mean, it was, it was going to be available. I had plans to do it in practice as well. We, we were in, in our new facility at Michigan. We were developing the capability to be able to, stop practice and show a replay up on the big screen right away and telestrate it so that, you know, in practice, you wouldn't do that all the time. You didn't want to break the continuity of practice, but you know, you could, you could adjust a ride or a clear something that's really hard to practice in a full field setting in game. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think like anything, there are trade-offs. I feel like if you're so focused on that stuff as a coaching staff, are you losing some of the feel of the flow of the game? Are you missing things when you're, um, you know, he, he, I, I can't, I can't argue with John Tillman's success at Maryland. He's, you know, arguably the most successful modern day coach in our game, uh, along with coach Tierney. But, uh, you know, I see on TV a lot where he's looking down at the iPad while the game's while something's going on. Right. And so how much are you missing when you're doing that? And, and that would be a concern of mine as a coach. Um, if you get rid of it on the sideline, you know, that information could still potentially, you just can't see it, but that information could still be fed to you. You could still have your student managers up breaking down all the film and doing the analytics and doing anything else they're doing up in the box or wherever they are and sending that down to you somehow. Right. Well, that's where I really like the, the international rules personally. It's like you have a certain number of coaches allowed on the sideline and that's it. That's all you get. And so it really kind of takes the game back in time, which – uh, probably is very antiquated to most people, but I loved, I loved watching a guy like coach T do what he does, which was digest all that while barking at officials and then make an astute observation that changes the outcome of the game. That's what makes that guy special. 
And I think that, you know, if you implement technology, well, anybody can digest information because they can rewind it and fast forward it on their iPad. And it's, for me, it's, uh, it's really, it gets away from the, the spirit of the game. And I don't think that everybody's talking about shot clock and different things. I don't think that that's being talked about enough. Yeah. And it's, I hadn't thought of it that way again, cause I'm not exposed to it. What are your plans this year? With technology, we, you guys make it all. Changes? Yeah, we have it all. We have iPads on the sideline at practice during games, and I, I, I don't, I, I don't really get lost in the minutia of it. You know, if there's a uh, halftime, I'll take a peek at something, but that's usually the only time because if there's people that I need to talk to. Like the whole thing for me is a conversation. The entire experience of the game is a conversation, whether it's with the faceoff guys, or the man-up unit, or our offense, or our defense, or the refs. Um, and so to to bury my head in an iPad, I just I know that there's value in it, but it's probably value derived from somebody else watching for something for me and then notifying me. Um, but again, I just, if I can't pick it up in real time, then I don't think I should be able to be privy to that information. I think the challenge ultimately though, for every coach is how do I put my guys in the best position to perform at their highest level? Oh, of course. And that's it. Right. And so everybody has a path to get there, but what you have to decide, and this goes back to what we were talking about being overprepared or underprepared or how much information you, you give the guys in the scouting report, you know, ultimately you have to give them just enough so that they can process it and it can be impactful on what they're doing. Right. And that's positively impactful on what they're doing. And, and as a coach, that's the trick, right? That's what you're juggling all the time is, is cause you're going to know way more. You're going to recognize way more. You're going to see more as it happens. Uh, and you're going to be more prepared because you're sitting in an office 60 hours a week, pouring over film, you know, getting ready for something. They're not, right? So, but how much of that filters down to them? And, and how do you deliver that information and then in a way that they can process it? Yeah. That's the no trick. Question. And the slower you play, like, obviously, the, the more you can impact from a coach's perspective. And the simpler and the simpler you play, right? Yeah. The, the less complex your systems are. If you're in the Vince Lombardi model that, you know, just run a few plays and run them really, really, really well, then it doesn't matter a whole lot what the other guys are doing. You just do what you do really, really, really well. And you have two or three adjustments, of course, and that's it, mm -hmm. right? So stuff's not working. You're like, all right, adjustment number one, let's go. You know, and that's, that's it. Guys know what it is. Yeah. So I, I do think, I do think that's one of the greatest challenges. And, and then, you know, going off what you said as well, you know, ultimately all of this, how you deliver the information, what information is being delivered is based on relationships, right? You, at the core of all this, you have to be developing trust and relationships so that they are listening to you, trusting what you're saying, uh, and you're getting the best understanding you can of, of what they're processing and how they process it. What are their issues? How do they learn? Can I deliver information the same way to this guy as I do to this guy? You know, those are all that relationship base can get lost in all the minutia of, of all the, the technology that you're using as well. And, and ultimately that's the most important part of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I can believe me, I, I can certainly empathize with the other side, right? Like I wouldn't say that we should use less technology in the classroom, you know, like for our kids as they go through school. Um, there's certainly an argument to be made. I'm just, uh, I'm just thinking about it from more of a sporting, you know, side of things as opposed from the educational side. Sure. 
Um, September one's coming up just under a month away. Uh, the, the new recruiting rules went into effect last summer, but I think this 2020 class, um, that will now be available to speak to was the one that was, you know, affected the most uniquely in this rule change because many of them were committed. Uh, and then suddenly for a year and a half, they're shut off from direct communication and, you know, everything I'm hearing talking to both recruits and coaches is everybody's expecting this to kind of be the wild west when it opens up on September one, uh, are you approaching this year any differently? I'm assuming you don't have a lot of 2020s committed at Cleveland state. So. No. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I'm approaching it differently. Um, I mean, the way I look at it, right. It's this rat race for this top 50 kids. Right. And, um, after that, you know, after those top 50 kids and, and certainly some of those kids can be busts or not develop or not, you know, pan out, but those guys are pretty clearly the, the best players right now in their class. After that, it doesn't matter where you're ranked. You can be unranked and you can turn into one of the best players in the country. So I don't really feel the need to like get into a rat race, so to speak, for the top 50 guys. Not that we get, we're not going to get them, but I also just don't. I've had so much success and been fortunate to have guys pan out that weren't in anybody's recruiting radar that sure. I just don't feel pressure to do that. Um, I'm more concerned specifically, and this is just speaking for me at Cleveland State, not like on the greater recruiting landscape. I'm more concerned about the 10 to 12 kids that we bring in that year because they will be the first class coming in without our first class. So we're losing, we're going to have this void of, of leadership and experience um, because our, our first group will have graduated. So that 2020 group to me needs to be more than anything, just um, rock solid people that uh, are kind of drinking the Kool-Aid in terms of what we're building here. Um, because we're going to lose a huge group of guys that were, were, were pillars of, of the culture here. And so I kind of need to replace some of those guys with more culture guys. And um, certainly talent is never, you'd never want to sacrifice that, but um, that's a more important characteristic for me right now. And that's how you, to discover in the recruiting process. How, and how do you discover that in the recruiting process? How do you yeah. figure out, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to figure out if a guy talent and athletic talent wise and athletically is, is going to be a fit because you can just watch them and see it. Yep. How do you figure out if they're going to be a cultural fit for, for Cleveland state I, and for I you? I have to spend time with them. And honestly, uh, the way that we do it is through prospect days. Um, you know, if a kid, uh, you know, shows us that he has the ability at a showcase or tournament, boom, he's on our list. I invite him to prospect day. If he comes less to do with our evaluation of his talent, although that's important, and more to do with he's seriously interested in our program. From that prospect day, we usually then move on to a visit where we spend a pretty good amount of time with the young man and his family. And I have time between those two things to really do a deep dive into what this kid is all about with his high school coaches and with his uh, you know advisors and everything. So um, to me, I think in our 2018 class, every single kid in the class came to prospect day. In our 19 class, everybody went two. And it's just – I know people have their opinions on prospect days and something it's a money grab and all that stuff. And maybe at some institutions it is, but for me that that's an audition and uh, in, in more ways than just, can you, can you bury the ball in the back of the net or, or keep somebody from doing that? Yeah, I agree completely. And I also, I also think it's very difficult. I think it's one of the most difficult parts of this job is figuring out 
those intangibles, you know, beyond the lacrosse part, you know, who really is going to be a good fit. And then of course the other, you know, complete curveball that can be thrown at you is it's college, right? And college is the great X factor in this whole equation that, you know, college is in, is in, is such a uniquely, you know, life-changing experience for young people. Who knows how they're really going to react to the whole thing, not just division one lacrosse, but to the whole experience of going away to college for the first time, you know, that that's pretty hard to predict and that's, but it is what it is, right? That's, yeah, I mean, it's a complete and exact science and, and, that, and that's, that's part of it. That's part of it. And I think that the guys that end up being great recruiters aren't necessarily the guys that identify and land those kids in the top 50. It's the guys that land the ones that are the best fit for their place and their program. You've seen that over the years at certain places where that that's, taking place in those programs of uh, Andy Shea. Perfect example. Great example, right? Talk about finding the, the, the right kinds of guys in that atmosphere to culminate the national championship. I mean, that's, I think he's a master at it. Absolutely. Um, do you have, you know, going back though to the talent thing, do you have specifics that, that you, that you look for by position or, or, you know, that fit the way you're playing at Cleveland state? Are there, are there things that, that tell you, you know, that midfielder is going to fit us, that, that defenseman is going to fit us. And what are some of those? Yeah, I think it depends. Um, well, moving forward, it'll largely depend on, on, on the rules of the game um, and how, how that will shape um, uh, our roster and everybody's rosters moving forward. That's, that, that, that's certainly something that we're all kind of keeping a close eye on. Um, but as of right now, yes, I'm looking for guys that um, are extremely athletic and, and potentially two-way guys between the lines because we play in our first two years of existence probably uh, not wise on my part, but we've been in the top ten in terms of pace of play, um, and, and we play pretty fast. Um, we haven't had necessarily the finishers on the on the front door end um, to capitalize on some of those opportunities, but I think we're going to get them here in the next year or two. Um, but we've been very fast between the lines. We've been a pretty aggressive team defensively. Uh, we've been solid at the faceoff X and very, very good in the goal. So um, I'm looking for guys that can really get up and down the field, whether they have a pole on their hand or a short stick. I, I don't really care um, and play both, both ends of the field. Um, and, and then outside of that, I'm looking for guys that do something I can't coach. You know, there's a lot of things that we all kind of coach and hammer and, and will improve our, our athletes on but there's some guys that innately do something that I can't teach. And that might be just run faster than everybody else, or just picks up ground balls whenever there's one around them, just at a higher clip than the next guy, um, or just shoots the ball at a different speed. And we've all seen those guys who maybe don't do a ton on the field, but when he lets one go, it's like, whoa, that's different. Um, so I'm looking for kind of a combination of a guy here or there that does something uniquely uh, special. And then guys that I, I think are just, um, dynamic athletically that we can mold um, how we want them to sure. uh, when they get here. You've been, uh, you've been around a lot of great lacrosse players, um, especially, you know, in your days as a division one coach, but I'm sure at the other levels as well, what, what makes a guy elite? I mean, we just said, you know, you can, you can recruit top 50 guys all you want. And, and that certainly puts those guys in a head as in a head start position compared to a lot of kids, but they're not always the ones that end up being the elite players at the end of the day. And what makes somebody 
an elite player? What have you seen as that X factor? Uh, you know, for me, the elite piece, and I think it's probably pretty easy to point to stick skills, um, but it's, it's, the, it's the mental aspect of the game. Because I've had guys be elite in all shapes and sizes. Um, all of them pretty much had good sticks. I can't say that they didn't have good sticks, but they were just smart. They just understood the game. They understood how to take advantage of certain situations, offensively or defensively, um, and and they just it felt like in, in in many ways they they were coaches on the field or had a sixth sense about what was going on on the field. They were just smart, um, and so for me that's kind of the difference maker because um, you can look at a guy like Mark Matthews who's six five or a guy like Jeremy Noble who's five six, and it's like they're very different, but they're both elite, and the reason is because they're both thinking the game at a very, very high level. What do you think, what do you think is the best, if you're talking to a high school kid now, what's the best thing they can be doing aside from stick skills, which we've, we've been over a fair amount already. What are the best things they can be doing to prepare themselves to be a great division one college cross player? Yeah, I, every recruiting visit I've taken a kid around campus on at CSU, we stop at the film room and the weight room. And I tell them those are the two areas where kids are most efficient when they get here. Um, the film room and that, you know, a lot of high school lacrosse programs don't even film their games. And if they film their games, that's great, but they certainly don't film practice, you know? So they're just not seeing themselves in situations where they're making mistakes or doing something well and, and learning in that environment. And in many ways, and for many kids, that visual learning aspect is really big and allows them to, to, to get a lot better. And they just haven't been exposed to it. The weight room, again, such a widespread uh, variance in terms of how some kids have lifted plenty when they get to us. Some kids have never touched the weight. Um, so that's an area and it doesn't even matter, right? Because you're 18 when you get to college and you're playing against 22 year olds. So everybody's kind of underdeveloped um, to a degree. So those two areas, I think, will really, if you can focus on those two areas as a, as a high school kid, you're going to put yourself head and shoulders up above your classmates. Um, and, and, and then lastly, I would say box lacrosse, honestly. Uh, to me, um, playing box lacrosse um, and, and getting that experience, the speed of it, the, the obviously the tight quarters, the physicality, um, the quick read and react aspect of it, to me, that's just going to – you know, exponentially um, speed up your development. So uh, those two things I, I think are, are really important, the film and weights and, and some box lacrosse. You do any box training with your team now? Um, we started, I'm glad you asked, because this is like my favorite thing going right now. So we started the Ohio Collegiate Box Lacrosse League. Um, uh, the Resolute guys down in Columbus, uh, Nick Myers at Ohio State and myself, we, we kind of got together and, and we, uh, we reached out to, to Brownie and, and Shane Santos uh, and the U.S. Box League people and asked if we could kind of be the second city to have a collegiate box lacrosse league or second state in this case. Um, and they were generous enough to give us the opportunity. So this summer, I had a bunch of guys stay in Cleveland and, and do internships, some, in some cases do summer school, um, work out with our strength coach to try to hit on that earlier point, and then play box lacrosse, you know, three nights a week at a pretty high level. Um, and, and that was so invaluable and it, and it gets me excited. I go to the games just as a fan. I don't, I don't even partake in any of the lacrosse. I just sit there and watch. Um, but that's kind of where we're putting our emphasis on off season development is box lacrosse. And, uh, our first year we were supposed to go to Hofstra and Fairfield on spring break. And, uh, I don't know if you remember winter storm Stella. 
I do. It, it shut yeah. us down and we weren't able to go and we missed two games. And so in place of that trip, we just kind of, instead of going East, we went North and we took the team to Toronto and um, we spent a few days at the Toronto rock practice facility and played lacrosse and learn box. And then we took them to a Toronto rock lacrosse game. And, um, and I thought that was a pretty cool, uh, you know, different experience for a group of, of younger lacrosse players at the collegiate level to, to get to do. So that was pretty cool. So box is definitely something that I, uh, I'm big on and, and advocate and, and want to see more American kids play coming up because it's fun. It's really fun. And two, I think it just, it sets these kids up from a developmental standpoint to be successful. I agree completely. I had more fun playing box than I did field. I enjoyed playing that game more. I like, like watching and coaching the field game, but man, it was fun to play. A lot of fun to play. Are there opportunities for youth to play real box across in the Cleveland area now? Yeah. So unfortunately there's not a ton. We just, we, you know, we don't have a ton of facilities here. Right. Uh, it is, you know, as you know, in Michigan, right? Like when hockey can be played, people want to play hockey. Uh, and, and it's kind of that way here in Cleveland, but we're obviously working on it. You know, I, I kind of figured if we started with college and, and little kids got to come and watch the box lacrosse played at a pretty high level, that it would, it would have kind of a top down, uh, trickle down effect. And, and I think that's what we're going to see here. So we're working on it. I'd love to see more opportunities. Certainly uh, there's a group called the Cleveland Demons that does a nice job. Uh, Dave Blue, the Hudson coach, yep. started that. And um, Resolute in Columbus has, has done a phenomenal job. So it's growing, and we're going to try to help our best to, to foster that growth. That's great. Uh, and, and I agree completely that it's such an important part of the development piece. And, and you know, the bottom line, again, is it's for young people, it's fun. It's just a fun way to play the game. It's like playing pickup basketball. I mean, you're just you're getting up and down the court. You're you're touching the ball. You're getting so many touches, and uh, and your skills improve exponentially. No doubt, no doubt. And I, and I also you know and I shouldn't I shouldn't discount the value of uh, like driveway three by and yep. backyard three by. Like I think kids they they need to do that more. It needs to be fun. There needs to be no punishment for dropping the ball or taking a silly shot. It just needs to be enjoyable and um uh, you know you talk to guys like Lyle Thompson and some of these guys that have been just the best at what they do and it's largely because they just they just played around all the time Mark Matthews perfect example they, they like his parents told me he was a rink rat he just was at the rink all the time it's like well there you go that's why he's just always playing yeah and that that whole free play opportunity has almost disappeared from young people today right mm -hmm. where everything's organized and and everything's in teams. And somebody even was making the point to me the other day, and I hadn't really thought of it this way, but a lot of kids give up sports now because so much has turned into elite level travel teams that are geared towards getting you that division one opportunity. And when you're in, you know, seventh grade and you don't make the elite team, maybe you give up the sport because you're, you're like, you know, well, I'm not in the elite team. I'm, I'm, this isn't any, you know, I'm no good anymore. Whereas, you know, back in the day, you just keep playing for the city team. You're playing in the rec league and you're playing pickup with your boys. No doubt. I mean, I'm so thankful for, for and I know this sounds terrible, but for growing up in the era that I did, and um, you know, we didn't have any of this. Again, yeah. we played lacrosse two months a year. I never went to a lacrosse camp until top 205. Um, and, you know, when I wasn't playing lacrosse, I was playing hoops or football or something else. Yep. There's, there's a ton of value in that. Well, last question for me before I go, I've been asking this one to everybody. If you're doing this podcast and you get 
an opportunity to talk to a lot of, I'm not just talking to coaches, but, um, but you get an opportunity to talk to a lot of other coaches. What's the question that you find yourself asking other coaches a lot that, that, you know, you would ask in this position, what's something you're always curious about with how other coaches do what they do? Yeah, I, I, um, you know, there's certainly, uh, schematic questions I, I'd have for certain guys because they're just, they're so good at what they do. And I'm just so envious and want to know how they do it. Um, but I think the question that, that, that kind of troubles me as a coach, and I think probably gives every coach of every sport um, hesitation, is what do you do – it's kind of twofold. What do you do with the guy that's immensely talented that doesn't work that hard? And what do you do with the guy that works his tail off, does everything you ask, and just isn't quite talented enough? You know, for me, those are those are two very, very tough questions that every coach of every sport faces. And uh, I think probably everybody answers them a little different, but um, it, it's uh, those are that's a tough one. There are so many different factors that go into how coaches make those decisions. And in a perfect world, in a perfect world, any coach will probably answer, well, they're going to play the kid that works the hardest. You know, that's, that's what we do. Right. Uh, but we don't live in a perfect world. We live with a lot of other pressures and other influences on, on what we're doing and the fact that we have to feed a family based on what we're doing and, you know, all those choices that we have to make. And, uh, and so that is, that is a hard question to answer where in our hearts, we all know it should be a really easy question to answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and you see it at the highest level of sport. You know, you see it when you're watching Hard Knocks. You see it when you're watching professional sports. And obviously you see it at the youth level when people are just completely carried away with winning and losing, and they shouldn't be. Um, but it's something I think everybody that's in sports faces, and it's just, all right, what are we actually doing here? You know, what are we teaching through sport? And, um, you know, when it becomes a business, I get there's a different side of it, but we're not all necessarily in the business of sport. So looking at that more closely, I just think it's a tough question and I've seen it handled a million different ways, some successful, some not successful, but um, I think every coach probably has a different take on it. And I also think every coach has probably learned some lessons. Sure. Going, working through the answer to that question themselves in their careers at some point or another. Right. I know I have, we probably yeah. all have. Well, this is really good stuff. Uh, appreciate you being, uh, you being open and taking the time today. This is a fun one. Um, thanks for spending the time. And uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you at some point this fall. I got, to, got an opportunity to come down and spend a weekend with you guys last fall and you know, would love to come down sometime. My family in Cleveland would love to come down and spend a couple of days at some point in the fall again. Oh, that would be my pleasure. I mean, I, I still talk to people when they bring up Mabel's that, you know, Coach Paul and I went to Mabel's and <laughs> had a dinosaur bone you know pretty much <laughs> um, so I, I would love to have you down and, and you can watch me stumble and mess up this whole shot clock thing uh until we figure it out and get it right yeah i'll be interested to see how you come across how you come around to that uh, to those decisions you and coach german i'll let you go so that you, you guys can keep arguing <laughs> yeah no, i appreciate it thanks for everything coach and uh again just thanks for for having me on and, and just uh all the opportunities for for mentorship i mean You've given me so much, and, and I've learned so much from you, so thank you. Well, both ways, buddy. All right. Well, good luck to you, and 
Thanks again. I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Dylan. Take care. Get down. Well, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? That was a really fun conversation with Dylan and uh, had a lot of great takeaways from that. But before I get into a couple of those, um, just a, a memory that, that we brought up when we started talking in the podcast, you know, Dylan and I mentioned we first met on a USA West trip to Osaka, Japan to take place in the Asia Pacific Games. And back in those days, this is about 12 or 13 years ago, I think. And back in those days, USA West was a group that was started by a guy named Steve Dini, who was uh, a longtime coach on the West Coast um, at, uh, at Cal and, and Chico State, um, always super involved in the game, was a high school coach as well, and started this program to gather uh, – college players from the West, mostly club players, MCLA players, um, but also mixing in some, uh, some really good varsity players, D1 and D3 varsity players, and give them an experience playing overseas in tournaments overseas in the summer. And I had the, the pleasure of coaching two of those teams for Steve. One at the 2002 World Championships in Perth, and uh, I have some great stories about that that I'll get into probably in another podcast. But we um, we spent two or three weeks in Perth. We had a training camp in California ahead of time and um, won the International Open Division of the World Championships, but also had an opportunity to scrimmage a number of the national teams, including Team USA. Jack Emmer was the coach of that team. Uh, they won the gold against Canada. Uh, Mikey Powell was on that team. Just a great Great experience, um, great team, great group of guys that we brought together from mostly from the West, but from all over the country um, to play in that event. And then the one that Dylan was a part of when he was still a player, a football and lacrosse player at Claremont was three years later in 2005 in Osaka, Japan, as part of the Asia Pacific Games. There was one other American team there. It called itself, I think, California West. Uh, <clears throat> but we had this great group again. Um, really cool group of coaches uh, and played um, international teams from all over the Pacific, from Australia, New Zealand, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, um, all over and uh, in this tournament. And it was such a great cultural experience as Dylan alluded to, but, but also a great lacrosse experience. And it's just a, it's one of so many examples um, as I, as I look through social media now and see guys participating, for example, in the Give and Go Fund or, or look at what's going on in international with the World Games that happened this summer and all the guys from the U.S. and Canada that are involved in international teams around the world, as I have been for years as well, and, and so many opportunities to stay involved and spread our game throughout the world as it continues to grow. Um, but these were still in some of the earlier days when there weren't as many opportunities, and, and Steve Dini was kind of a visionary in putting these teams together and, uh, and giving people this opportunity to get around the world. They, they, they participated in events in, in Europe, in Asia, in Australia, uh, all over the place. And it was, uh, it was such a blast to do. And, and the best part of it was it, it brought people together uh, in, in the lacrosse world, both internationally, but also in our teams, in these USA West teams and, um, 
and forged relationships that, as Dylan and I were talking about, still last today. Um, touching on a few things that, uh, that Dylan hit on that, that really struck me in the conversation. One is, and this is a pretty common theme anytime you talk to a Division I lacrosse coach or anybody who's reached the pinnacle of the game, is what the humble beginnings were like. Uh, it's not an easy career to move along in. It's not an easy career for a lot of people to get started in. And there are, there are steps often that you have to take uh, to move from, from one opportunity to another. And often when you're starting out, um, and this is especially true in things like sports and entertainment, you know, in entertainment, a lot of times you start in an agency, you start in the mailroom. Well, it's, it's the same kind of thing in sports, um, whether you're an administrative side or, or the coaching side. And, and Dylan alluded to, you know, his first jobs out mowing the field and, and having other jobs around campus as a security guard and lining the field and, and doing the team's laundry. And, you know, same for me when I started as a, as a college club coach, our storage room was the basement and we did the laundry in our, uh, the team laundry in our washing machine and my wife sold the tickets at the door to the games and, and, uh, you know, progressed year to year to the point where, um, you know, Dylan is now a division one coach at Cleveland state and, and I had that opportunity at Michigan, but you know, you certainly learn a lot of humility, uh, and you learn a lot about the operations of a program when you start, uh, and you're having to do all the minutia that goes into running a team. Um, especially for some of us that started even at the high school level, I, I first started coaching, at a startup high school program here in Michigan uh, in 1989. So, uh, and believe me, we were, we were practicing on an elementary school field. We weren't even allowed to use the high school field yet. So uh, there's, a, there's always a beginning. And I think the lesson there is you put your nose down, you do the best you can day to day. Uh, and if you have a vision, great. But, but if you're doing that and, you, and you're passionate about what you do, you know, the opportunities are going to keep coming. Um, some of the other things that, uh, that really hit me from the discussion with Dylan, we talked, as, as I'm going to talk to any college coach about, we talked about the, the views on, on multi-sport athletes. And I think especially um, topical with a guy like Dylan Sheridan because he, was, he went to college first and foremost to be a football player, was, uh, was recruited to Claremont Division II school to play football did not think he was going to play lacrosse anymore uh, at that point and then ended up, you know, playing lacrosse and, and making his career out of the sport. But um, he was obviously a multi-sport athlete, was a football and lacrosse player in high school and, and football was his first love. And, and I, I often ask coaches what they think the benefit is of being a multi-sport athlete. And he had a great take on that, that, that I don't know that I had really thought a lot about before, but his was that you, when you're playing other sports, often, you know, you might be a star in lacrosse. And if you're playing at the division one level where I recruited and where he's recruiting now, you're recruiting guys who obviously are stars at their high school, who are really good lacrosse players and, and probably have been for a while. Um, in other sports, sometimes that's the case with some of the, the stud guys you're recruiting. Sometimes it's not. And you're playing uh, another sport like a basketball or a football, and maybe you're a role player. Maybe you're a special teams guy. Maybe you're a backup. Uh, maybe you don't get to see the floor that often in your second or third sport. That's an important lesson to learn because when you get to college, 
often you are going to be a backup when you first get there. You might be asked to accept a role that you didn't anticipate or, or you're not, you know, super fired up to do. Um, but the team needs it. And having that experience through playing other sports, you know, makes that process, I think, a lot easier for guys to adjust to when they get to college games. Great point, point um, brought up by him. Uh, another, as we talked about and I talk about a lot, is uh, in other sports, often at the high school level, especially in developing regions of the country where our sport is still developing, you might get um, a higher level of coaching and a little bit tougher coaching uh, in other sports than lacrosse, where your lacrosse coach um, might not be as experienced or might not be doing it full time or might not uh, have the tools and resources to be able to give you the kind of feedback that, that you might be getting in other sports. And it can teach you to take criticism in a positive way. As Dylan said, you know, the game's one day a week and practices are the other five. And in those practices, you're going to be getting often a lot more criticism, hopefully constructive, but you're going to be getting a lot more criticism than you are praise because that's how you get better. Uh, you are, you're, you're, you know, told what you can be doing better and, and, and how to get there. And you have to be able to take that criticism and, um, and playing other sports exposes you to more of that. Uh, and again, just kind of gets you ready for the mental toughness that you're going to need to be an elite athlete at the highest level. Uh, he talked as well about what he looks for in recruits. Um, there were a number of things we talked about culture, but I thought the one uh, obviously talent, um, but I thought the one thing that that jumped out was um, he said one of the things he's looking for is guys who can do something that I can't coach. And that's a that's a good way of putting, um, you know, looking for that special talent or that special athleticism um, or that special ability that stands out that isn't something that you're going to get just from uh, – reps on the wall or just from um, watching film or just from coaching uh, and truly great athletes in any sport often have some of that. They have something that's just not coachable. Uh, that's just innate in them. And, and it could be something athletic it could be they're the fastest guy in the field. It could be that their mechanics uh, in their shot and in the way their body set up is, is just so good that, you know, they're able to, generate a lot more power on their shot, whatever that is. But it's something that, uh, that as a coach, you're looking at saying, I, I can't teach that. That's something that, that they just have. Um, and so that's one of the things that he's looking for is, is some indicator that they have something that, that he's not going to be able to coach them on. Um, one other side note on, on multi-sport athletes. I mentioned in the interview that uh, I've had this discussion with a number of coaches of other sports at Michigan and, and the vast majority of them are um, also try to favor multi-sport athletes and, you know, had this discussion with football coaches at Michigan, for example. And one of the stories that, that stands out to me was with uh, Jim Harbaugh, the current Michigan football coach, his first summer here after his first season, um, he asked me to help with uh, a particular recruit that was coming in for a one-day uh, quarterback camp that they were doing. And so, and because I knew the, the kid and the family. 
they they were also lacrosse players and so came over and spent the day with uh with him and his father and his high school lacrosse coach uh who came in or i'm sorry high school football coach who came in for the visit uh and at this quarterback camp and and got to watch a lot of the quarterback camp so picture this um coach harbaugh and the michigan staff and all these pro quarterbacks and former michigan quarterbacks that they have in the staff at camp they have about 120 elite high school quarterbacks in for this one day camp and and when i say elite i mean a lot of them were elite like big time big time recruits and you know, you, you picture that camp and you think about what they're doing. They have all these great quarterbacks, they're coaching them. And, uh, you know, you're thinking they're going to be doing, you know, all the drills that quarterbacks do all the time. And uh, they're going to be doing footwork drills and, and passing drills and, and route trees and, you know, everything else that you want quarterbacks to go through so that you can coach them up on it and so that you can evaluate them a little bit as well. <clears throat> One of the parts that I watched uh, they had the group split into different fields. The field I was at, Coach Harbaugh was at, and there were about 40 of the quarterbacks there. And uh, this drill was um, they brought a baseball coach out with a baseball. They had one glove, and one at a time, the quarterbacks went out on the, and this is in Michigan Stadium, went out on the field and had to catch uh, a pop fly. The baseball coach would hit a pop fly way up in the air, like a big-time pop fly. They would have to um, judge it catch it and then throw the baseball into Harbaugh who had his, his mitt. And if you know the guy, he brings a mitt to baseball games. When he goes to baseball games, he's still a kid that way. Uh, and they had to throw it into him and he would fake the tag. Like he, you know, like he was tagging somebody out at the plate and then the next guy would be up. This took some time. Each guy got one rep, each elite high school quarterback got one rep. Uh, they had to wait in line. Each guy took like 30 seconds by the time he ran out there, got the glove, got the hit to him, caught it, threw it in, uh, and they had to wait through all that and then, uh, and then get their one chance. And, you know, you think about that. That's about, you know, 20 minutes of the camp that is just getting each guy's getting one rep of a pop fly catch and throwing it in with baseball glove at an elite quarterback camp. Harbaugh's methodology there, the way he's thinking is, and he did a lot of things like that. They've, had, they've done soccer. They haven't done lacrosse yet at these camps, but they've done soccer drills, they've done wrestling drills, they've done all these different things. His thinking there is he wanted to judge total athleticism and confidence. You get out there, you get one rep in front of everybody on a pop fly where you're isolated. Uh, You may have played baseball, you may not have. You got to judge the ball, you got to get under it, you got to catch it, and then obviously quarterbacks can throw, but can you throw a baseball, uh, you know, 40, 50 yards in, to a, a guy waiting for the tag at the plate. And when that guy's Jim Harbaugh waiting with the mitt and, and, uh, and screaming at you, can you do all that? Can you execute it? Um, can you look confident and smooth doing it? That's what he was looking for. And it's, it was a really interesting lesson on, you know, this wasn't just about uh, football skills. These guys all had football skills. If he gets them at Michigan, if he gets one or two of them at Michigan, he's going to coach them a ton more on football skills. He wanted to see what kind of competent athletes they were. And that's what this drill was about. Uh, it was a really interesting way to approach that. And it kind of goes to what uh, Dylan and I were talking about with, with multi-sport athletes and the, and the importance there. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Um, really excited about the next one. I'm going to have a chat in a couple of days with Mikey Schlosser 
who played for me here at Michigan and just came off uh, his second year with the Denver Outlaws where he tore it up uh, and, and had an amazing year with the Outlaws, was one of their key players on the championship team and, um, and is still, he's 100% lacrosse in his life right now. That's all he's doing. Um, just got signed actually with Adrenaline as an Adrenaline athlete and, uh, and is, is doing so many great things in the game. And so excited to catch up with Mikey and, uh, and share some of his energy with all of you in the next episode. So until then, we'll talk to you talk soon. To you Thanks soon. for Thanks listening. For listening. Thanks for listening. Come on, baby.